Hi everyone, and welcome to The Seed Podcast, part of our teaching ministry here at the Central Church in Fayette, Alabama. The Seed exists for one reason only, and that is to lift up the Word of God in order that Jesus Christ might be known and worshipped as King. We invite you to join us now as we dive in to today's message. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone brings grace and peace. Full stop. Just Him. Any other source, any other place that I go to seek peace, I will only find unpeace. Grace, it's nowhere other than in Him. Him alone. He is the source of the grace and the peace which is our life. Grace to you from that God and that Father. I think I mentioned to you last week as we study the Ten Commandments and we're going straight into number one this morning. You can find those in one of two places. You go to Exodus 20 and you find it in the flow of the story where God originally comes down and speaks these Ten Commandments to His people. That's Exodus 20. Deuteronomy 5, you're just about to get into the promised land and Moses comes, gathers all the people, I want to remind you of the law before you go into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy 5, you have a retelling of the Ten Commandments. You can read them one of two places. They are mostly the same, but they are slightly different. And we'll talk about that in week four. Week five, commandment four. It's very interesting. But you go to that retelling there in Deuteronomy 5, and you drop down just a little bit to Deuteronomy 6, And Moses actually reiterates the first commandment all over again. It's like, guys, I'm serious about this one. I know you heard me. I know I just retold you and you heard me again. But I don't know if you understand this is crucial. This is critically important. Deuteronomy 6, 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. You think this is important? Let me tell you again. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. He's like, God, I don't know if you're hearing this, how big of a deal this is. But you're about to get in there and you're going to realize they are all around you, these gods, these other gods. And I know it might might sound silly, but I just got to tell you one more time. Don't serve them. Don't serve. You're going to be tempted to. I don't think you realize that. Let me tell you one last time. I did a little bit of uh, exploration, a little dive on these Canaanite gods this week. And it was really fun. Kind of interesting to read up on what they would have been thinking about and seeing as Moses is telling them don't serve other gods. Uh, You go out. And I was able to find about 60 uh, Canaanite deities. They've got all... They got gods for everything. It's almost like the Greeks and the Romans. They were much the same. I'm not going to tell you all 60 of them, but I wanted to give you guys just an example of what they would have been looking at. I've got some pictures as well, pictures from archaeological finds and also some uh, modern renderings of these gods. So I want to show these to you real quick. This is Dagon. You read about Dagon in the Bible. Uh, the Philistines served Dagon. I don't think they were the only little tribe. Uh, Dagon was the god of crop fertility and grain. 
So you want your crops to grow, you want your grain to do well, Dagon is your man. Moloch, god of the fire. You might have heard it pronounced Molech. Molech, Moloch, he was the god of the fire. There was this abominable practice you might have read also in the Bible of offering your children on the fiery altar of Moloch, and they would be grilled alive. Sorry, young ears. Um, you had Mot. Mot was the god of death. Now, this is, of course, a, a modern rendering, but it's pretty accurate. Every depiction of Mot, he has this huge mouth, because what does death do? Death swallows you up. Death swallows everything up. You, the birds, the squirrels, I came here yesterday, there was a poor little deer laying in the grass over there. The trees, the grass, everything eventually is swallowed up by death. So he's depicted as having this huge mouth. And it's actually this neat little tie-in when Paul tells us that death is swallowed up. He's making a, a play on this well-known God, that this guy is going to be swallowed up. A little hard to see this one. This is Shadrapha. He is the God of medicine and healing. And whether you can tell it or not, this is actually a sort of tragic picture right here. You see what he's holding right there. It's a staff with a serpent twisted around it. Where have you seen that before? Medicine. Medicine. This, this is a, a symbol we use even today. But not because we know about Shadrapha, because we know about the bronze serpent in the wilderness. When the serpents, the fiery serpents, were biting the people and Moses came to the Lord and, and the Lord told him, put up a bronze serpent on a staff and any time anyone is bit, they can look at that and they'll be healed. What you see here is Canaanite gods borrowing from Israelite gods. And it's kind of a tragic story because we read about this all throughout the history of Israel where they would enmesh with the peoples of the land. They would borrow from pagan gods. The pagans would borrow from their gods. So... Very interesting, the Canaanite god of medicine borrows a Israelite symbol. This is again a, a current, a modern rendering of Ashima, the goddess of fate. Pretty, pretty scary there. Chemosh, the god of war and destruction. And here is my personal favorite, Marquad, the god of the dance. Which is not to be confused with Farquad, the lord of Duloc, different religion. Okay, so you rattle off a list like that, and um, I'm not in entirely sure how Israel would have felt about it. Like, it seems silly to us, but maybe they were a little more tempted than we would be. I know how we feel about it when you rattle off a list like that. It's like, there's no temptation here at all. Why is Moses so serious about, don't go worship Dagon, the god of the grain, you guys. Don't go <laughs> worship Marquad, the god of the dance, you guys. I I'm telling you guys. To us, it's like, okay, no, I'm not going to go worship Marquard or Dacon. There's nothing there for me. And that's kind of what the Israelites were saying, at least. I don't know exactly how they felt, but they were saying, all that Yahweh says, we will do. We will worship Yahweh alone. We will not worship these Canaanite gods. No, no, there's, there's, there's no temptation. No, we're not going to do that. But we know that they did. We know that they did worship the Canaanite gods. We know that year after year after year, this was a constant temptation for them. We know that eventually this was their destruction as they just could not pull themselves away from worshiping these Canaanite gods. And so I think as we get ready to study the first commandment today, one of the most 
meaningful things that we can do is instead of ridiculing these guys for worshiping such gods, try to understand why. Like, why was this a temptation? Why would you be tempted to worship Dagon or Marquad or, or what have you? So, so here's what I want to do first of all. Let's just take this guy, Dagon, the god of crop fertility and grain, and try to get into the why. Like, why would you worship this? Uh, if, if you are familiar with the story of Dagon in uh, 1 Samuel 5, I believe it is, the Philistines have actually captured the Ark of the Covenant and they have taken it to their city and they have put it in the temple of Dagon. I don't know if you remember the story or not. They, they put it by Dagon. They go home for the day. They come back the next morning. Dagon is toppled over on his face. They set Dagon back up. They go home at the end of that day. They come back the next morning. Dagon is again toppled over on his face and his hands and his head are cut off and laying on the threshold of the temple. And the biblical author makes a little side note. That's why, if you guys are familiar with these people, that's why they do not walk on the threshold of their temples even to this day. They are so afraid of what Yahweh did to their god Dagon. They actually, Yahweh was not only messing with Dagon's statues, he was also inflicting the people, the Philistines, with uh, mice and with tumors. And so what the Philistines decided to do, they were like, we got to send this thing back, number one. But we've also got to appease this God, whoever he is, who is afflicting us with mice and tumors. And so they, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in an ox cart. And they hook it up to some cattle. And they also make an offering of golden rye, mice and golden tumors. Just throw it in the cart with the Ark of the Covenant, slap the cow on the hind end, and they just send it down the road. Like, like, can you imagine being the Israelite, the first one to see that? Like, yay, our Ark of the Covenant's back. <laughs> golden mice, golden tumor. Those people are weird. And it's just like, what is going on? Okay, so Dagon, why would you worship the God of crop and fertility and grain? You have to start with a legitimate fear. There's a legitimate fear. What if our crops don't come in? What if our crops fail? Today, you and I live in a world that's incredibly connected, networked. We have incredible technology. We do not worry about our food supply. But even today, you go across the world to a land that is more primitive, a culture that's more primitive than ours. What happens when the crops don't come in? Death happens when the crops don't come in. Famine begins to happen. Starvation, disease begins to spread. This is a, this is a legitimate fear. We need to see to our crop fertility in our grain. There's a legitimate fear at the bottom of this God worship. You add to that the uncertainty of life. Now, we know that we know things in our culture they did not know in their culture. They were scientifically uncertain about a great many things. They didn't know why it rains sometimes and why it doesn't rain sometimes. They didn't know the biology, the botany of all these things, why you know, this fertilizer might work. I'm sure they knew some things, but we know more things now. They, they were very uncertain about these things. And so maybe there's a God who makes it rain sometimes or makes it not rain when he's angry. Maybe there's a God that makes the soil fertile sometimes and sometimes it's not fertile. They were uncertain about these things. But understand, even though we might know weather patterns today, we're still uncertain. Just because you know why it rains doesn't mean you know it will rain. And so we still deal with the uncertainty of life today, even though we might have way more 
technological or scientific knowledge. You have legitimate fear, you have the uncertainty of life, and then you have this third thing, the temptation of the shortcut. Okay, that, that still exists today. Maybe I know that I'm not a good farmer. Maybe I do know that I waited too late to plant this year. Maybe I do know that I didn't fertilize like I should have. But maybe if I could get in good with the big guy, he could kind of make it all okay anyway. Maybe if I serve this God that may or may not exist, that takes care of the grain fertility and the, and the crops, maybe we can still be good. Human nature has always gravitated to the shortcut, getting us off the hook for not putting in the work that we should have put in. So, so what's the temptation to worship one of these gods? Why is Moses so concerned about them going to these things? Well, here it is. You take a legitimate fear, you add the uncertainty of life, and the temptation of the shortcut, and men will serve other gods. They did it then. They do it today. That's all it takes. Fear, uncertainty, and the temptation to shortcut. How do men serve other gods? Men serve other gods through superstition. One of the things that they did then and that they do even today. Canaanite practice, they would sprinkle milk on the crops and on the planted grain. Why would you sprinkle milk on your crops? Well, milk is this rich symbol of fertility, right? A mother's milk who is fertile and giving birth. They thought, well, maybe this symbol of fertility will transfer if we sprinkle it on the crops. 2022, uh, a poll was done on YouGov dot com of who believes in astrology who follows astrology these days they found that 27 percent of americans believe that the position of the stars and the planets has real influence on our lives today and, and what's more than that it's a lot more popular with the young people than you might think under 30 the number rose to 37 percent 37 percent of americans under the age of 30 follow astrology, believe that the stars have power, including 10% of atheists. Figure that one out. So, so there's not a God who has power, but the stars and the planets do, 10% 10, 10 of atheists say. Again, how can my horoscope help me navigate the uncertainties of life? I've got real concerns and fears for my life. I'm looking to something to help me out with that. <coughs> But it's not just astrology, it's not just paganism, it's, um, there's Christian superstition as well. 63% of Americans profess to be Christians and so it would make sense that American superstition might take on some Christian flavor. And so let me show you this one. If you go to the city of Jerusalem today, the, the site that most scholars believe houses Golgotha and the tomb. So. I'm so sorry, excuse me. You've got the hill of Calvary over here, and then from there a distance over to the empty tomb. They just built a big church right over that whole site. It's a huge church, huge ceilings, um, and you understand a hill is like go up the elevator to the second, third floor, right? It's, it's just this huge church covering the whole thing. You walk into the middle of that church, the big doors, and this is what you will see immediately as you walk in to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's the stone that is believed to be the place where, okay, Nicodemus and Joseph have taken the body of Christ off the cross. They've come kind of halfway, which is in the middle of the church, and they laid it down on this stone slab to wrap it with the linen cloths and anoint it for burial before they go down to the other end of the church 
where the empty tomb is. That's kind of what you're seeing right here. On a busy day, there will be a line of pilgrims at this stone slab right here uh, to kiss it, to wipe scarves all over it, other little tokens. But if you can't go to Israel, you're in luck. I found this on Etsy for $39. It was listed as, quote, Jesus-scented cross rubbed on the stone of unction. It says, have a piece of Jesus and his scent bless you at all times. And from a local tour guide, I, I pulled this. He said, quote, true believers hold that a cross blessed on the anointing stone will offer protection from any disease. Okay, so for all our learning, we've never gotten over the fear of death and disease. We're, we're uncertain about our health. No matter how good our doctors and our medicines are, there's always some... Some uncertainty there. And a magical protection against disease is a welcome shortcut. You see how that works. The superstition. Somebody will say, Jordan, it's not worshiping other gods. This is still worshiping Jesus, looking to Jesus for healing, right? No. This is manipulation of Jesus for healing. Biblical healing was always the answer to a request made to God on the basis of a relationship with God not on the basis of a magical token I carry around my neck. And Christian superstition occurs when we want something from God, but we try to shortcut the work of having a relationship with God. We shortcut the vulnerable part where we make a request to the God of heaven knowing that he might say no because it's best and it's in his will. He might say yes, but in his timing or in his way. He is not beholden to do what we say just because we're holding the Jesus-scented cross. He does what he does because he is God and we worship him. There's no other gods before him. We fall on our knees before him. And on the basis of his relationship, yes, he blesses us. But not because we're manipulating it with a superstitious token. That's the difference. We need to be careful of superstition. We need to be careful of the other gods serving the other gods of worldly power. We serve gods of worldly power. You remember Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar erects this golden image, which some have said maybe it was this god, maybe it was that god. Most scholars say, you know what? If it was related to a particular god, he probably would have named it. The image was probably Nebuchadnezzar himself. Worship me. We don't know. But he erects this, this idol, and there's a temptation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to worship this idol. Why? Because they believe it's the answer to a personal fear that they have? No. Why? Because they're uncertain about something and they think that this idol will help? No. Why are they worshiping it? They're worshiping it because Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll kill you if you don't worship it. A lot of the gods and the god kings across this world and down through history may not have been worshipped out of conviction, but coercion. As in, you better worship this God or there will be consequences if you do not worship. So we remember the fiery furnace. We remember Daniel and the lion's den. We remember Stephen, who was stoned because he would not go along with the masses who were rejecting Jesus. There's this God of worldly power that's always there in the background. Because the way this world works, whoever has the numbers, whoever has the dollars, whoever has the power 
is right. What is the God of worldly power? It's whatever the votes and dollars say. But time and time again, what this scripture does, what this Bible, what this book does, is it, it puts men and women in front of our eyes who kept their focus on the God of heaven even when God didn't have the votes or God didn't have the dollars. So um, it was roughly three years, about three years after they left the land of Egypt. They go to Sinai. They get there in about three months. They go, they stay at Sinai about two and a half years, just about. And then they walk from there to the border of the land of Canaan. And when they get there, Moses decides to send in 12 spies. You can go read their names, book of Numbers, chapter 13. 12 spies, all in all. They go in to spy out the land. Now, I would like to think that Moses sent them in there to get the tactics and the strategy right. But, you know, there may be this side of, of them that, well, let's just make sure we can do it first. And because that's the answer they get. The 12 come back and they thought that it was their job to answer whether or not they could do it. And 10 of them say, no, no. There's big people in there. They're strong. There's big cities in there. They're fortified. We even saw giants. It's a no-go. The other two spies, Caleb, from the tribe of Judah, of all places. Joshua, son of Nun, from the tribe of Ephraim. They say, come on. No, God told us to do this. Like God's voice is taking us that way. God said to do it. We can do this. Come on. The vote stood 10 to 2. Moses and Aaron, they immediately see what Joshua and Caleb saw. They fall on their faces, the four of them together, Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron, and they plead with the people who are growing more antsy by the minute, begging to go back to Egypt, more and more so by the minute. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb fall before the people, and they say, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land. He will give it to us. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. As they were pleading and begging with the people, they started to pick up stones to stone Moses and Joshua and Caleb and Aaron. And the vote got worse. Two million and ten to four now. Who are we going to worship? Which way are we going to go? What, what, what do the votes say? What do the votes say? And what would you have done? I like, like, be honest. Don't, don't blow smoke. What would you have done if it was just four of you and two million and ten of them with rocks? What would you have done? We don't know. It seems like they stayed faithful right to the very end because the glory of the Lord shows up and he stops the crowd at that moment. It's almost like when the angel of the Lord stopped the knife of Abraham, the glory of the Lord shines into the picture and he stops the masses because now God is angry. God is, he's lit. Numbers 14 and verse 11. God says, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all that I have done among them. And God he moved right then and there to kill every last one of them. But Moses, for another time, intervenes, begs God, God, think of your glory. Think of what the peoples around will say. And God, don't do this. And so God said, okay, okay. 
I won't destroy them. I won't demolish them. But they're under a curse. Truly, as I live, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Why, why, why God? Why, why have you cut us off from your promises? Because you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You're either going to follow the voice of the one true God wherever he leads you, or you're going to follow the voice of superstition. You're going to follow the voice of worldly power. You can count votes and dollars, or you can count on the one, but you've got to choose. You've got to choose. Jesus said it this way. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one. And despise them, the other, but you cannot serve God and money. He could have said it several different ways there. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and popular opinion. You can't serve God and job security. You can't serve God and you, you shall have no other gods. Full stop. And the question for each and every one of us this morning is it's so simple. Where am I holding back from worshiping God alone? Where am I holding back from worshiping God alone? Where have I been looking for the shortcut? Okay. Where have I been counting on that superstitious God to bail me out? You know, maybe I'm guilty this morning of wanting God's stuff, but not taking the time to actually have a relationship with God. That's what that boils down to. Where have I been trying to shortcut my worship and get God's stuff without a relationship with God? Where have I been bowing to worldly power when I should have been trusting in God? Okay, I've heard the voice of God. I know where he's saying to go. I know what obedience looks like. It looks like wherever the voice of God is, that's where I go. But I'm too afraid to stop counting the votes and the dollars to go. Where am I holding back from serving God? If I had the courage this morning to give a 100% yes to God... Where would I go that I'm holding back right now from going? What would I do that I'm holding back right now from doing? Who would I speak to? What conversation would I have that I'm holding back right now from doing and having? But if I had the courage to give God a 100% yes, it happened today. Where would he lead me if I had the, worship, the courage to worship him alone? Where would he lead this church if we had the courage to worship him alone. You shall have no other gods before me. If you would please pray with me. Father God, we, we come to you, first of all, acknowledging your graciousness just in being right here. Being here in the midst of a broken people. Father, we love you. We want nothing less than to be like you. Father, we want to be like Jesus. We want to do and to say all the things that Jesus would do and to say without inhibition, 100% yes to you all the time. But Father, we are walking and talking and thinking through this flesh that just slows the whole process down. Father, crucify my flesh. 
Father, I'm tired. So tired. I just want to be like you. Father, I pray that as you, as you take control of hearts one by one, that you would build an army, even an army of four people. It's all you desire. It's all you need. Father, take us and do glorious things with us as we lay down our hearts before you and as we smash our idols at your feet. Father, I pray not only for myself and my household, for this church, for this community. Father, I just pray that your kingdom would be all in all in this place and it would swell to be the only thing anybody can see anywhere they look because it is the power that overcomes the world. Father, we pray all these things in the mighty name of Christ. And now we pray together as a church family. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and amen. We thank you again for joining us this week at Central and may the Lord Jesus Christ be magnified in your life today. Thank you.